The trader was sheltering from the harsh sunlight beneath the canopy of his stall as he observed the arrival of the Rus, that's people that some referred to as the Vikings. Tales told that their homeland lay far in the north, near the land of darkness, a strange country of frozen forests where colourful jinn danced and battled across the night sky. They had sailed through the lands of the Slavs and Khazars, across the great Caspian Sea, and purchased camels to make the long journey to Baghdad, where they would sell the exotic wares that they brought from the frozen north. Honey, furs, swords, and also slaves they had captured in warfare. When they had arrived, a group of them disembarked from their camels to explore the small markets, marvelling at the smells of the spices and the colours of the silks. They were a strange-looking group. Some were ghostly pale, with hair coloured as if it were kissed by fire, whilst others were near indistinguishable from the Slavs and Turks, suggesting that the Rus bred with the folk of any nation they encountered. They claimed to be Christians, as many went to visit the small Greek chapel in the town, and it was known that some Rus had converted to Islam, but many amongst this group wore strange, hammer-shaped amulets, and one woman even had the look of a witch about her, so the trader doubted that any of the faithful could be found amongst this party. The man that the trader presumed to be the Rus leader wore large, baggy, colourful trousers, had a fine Frankish sword hanging from his belts, and wore a light shawl to shield his fair skin from the sun. This was pinned in place by a gleaming, polished brooch, which was clearly made from a large silver coin. These northern barbarians truly were a vain people. A Rus woman, perhaps his wife or daughter, approached the trader and selected a length of crimson-coloured silk, offering a small silver coin in exchange, a foreign one which the trader did not recognise. It had Roman lettering upon it, which read Alfred, Rex, Anglorum. Perhaps Alfred was the name of some great barbarian king of the Finns or the Magyars, but the coins he'd struck were too small and worthless for silk of this value. The Rus woman did not speak a word of Arabic, but a Slavic eunuch thankfully did, and he explained the cost of silk to his mistress. She searched her purse for larger coins, but could not find one, so instead she removed her enormous silver neck ring and sliced a carefully measured chunk of it using a knife which bore a decorated ivory handle. She placed the chunk of silver into the copper pans of the trader's scales, which he measured against small lead weights. The Rus woman giggled and spoke, and the eunuch revealed that his mistress was amused that the trader appeared to use dice as weights, and she wondered if this was some strange gambling game. The trader rolled his eyes, but politely handed the silk to the woman, satisfied that this chunk of silver was suitable payment for the precious fabric. The Rus soon climbed aboard their camels and departed, continuing on the road to Baghdad, and would no doubt pass by the trader's stall again on their return journey, their purses filled with silver dirhams ready to spend. The trader smiled, satisfied that the Rus would make him a very wealthy man. In Viking times, a thing was a gathering, a place where leaders and warriors could meet and talk. 
In the 21st century, Our Thing is a virtual place where history academics and enthusiasts from around the world can come together to share knowledge. We're your hosts, Miranda Schmiederer and Lucas Norton. So hold on to your helmets for this episode of that Jorvik Viking Thing podcast. Carrying on from our last episode, all about skeletons in the galleries at the Jorvik Viking Center. Make sure to listen if you haven't already. Um, We are going to talk about a new display case that we've got here at Jorvik with some pretty exciting stuff in. Yeah, we've waved goodbye to the Halton Moor Horde, which has graced the Viking Center for quite a few years now. And we've welcomed some new, lovely, shiny things into these display cases loaned by the British Museum. It's quite a striking little display to look at. Where do we want to start? So these objects are a bit more exotic than some of the stuff we've had here before. Uh, these come from the east, so from the part of the world where the Vikings are known as the Rus. The Rus? I've heard of them before, so are they considered to be Vikings properly? So the Rus, this is a word that's applied to what we call the Vikings in the West. To people of Scandinavian origin, active in Eastern Europe and Western Asia. There are all sorts of different names, of course, that are applied to these people during the Viking Age. The Northmen, the Norsemen, the Vikings. The Rus is another one in that long, long list of names. So... In the West, of course, the Vikings are most famous for attacking and setting fire to monasteries. Yeah. Then a bit later on, they settle down and chill out a little bit. <laughs> In the East, there are not a lot of big wealthy monasteries. There aren't Lindisfarne's all over the coast of the Baltic, for instance, in this time period. But if you go even further into the East and a bit further south, you find some very, very, very wealthy places. There is the Islamic Caliphate, of course, covering much of Western Asia. And, of course, the Byzantine Empire in the eastern Mediterranean, with Constantinople, or modern-day Istanbul, as its capital. Very, very wealthy markets, which the people of Scandinavia would love to get access to. And conveniently, there are some lovely, wide, deep rivers that cover much of Eastern Europe. I bet our Viking friends liked that. Yes, definitely. So they could sail through places like Poland, the Baltic states, Russia and Ukraine get to the Black Sea or even the Caspian Sea if they want to go further east, and they can trade with these wealthy civilizations. And those people refer to these Vikings as the Rus, at least in a lot of the Arabic and Greek literature that we have. They mixed in with the native peoples of those areas in a very similar way that they mixed in with people in Western Europe. So, for example, here in York, we know that Vikings are intermarrying and kind of culturally exchanging with the Anglo-Saxon peoples. They're doing a similar thing with the Irish as well. They become the Normans in the north of France when they mix with the people there, adopting a lot of their culture. In Eastern Europe, they are intermarrying with and culturally mingling with Slavic peoples, Baltic peoples, and Finnic peoples as well. So out in the east, they seem to have become famous as traders mainly. So there was a little bit of violence. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little. Yes. Sorry, yeah, yeah. They did, did attack some cities around the Caspian Sea. They also attacked Constantinople more than once, which was a very, very bad idea. Because <laughs> at the time, they had something called Greek fire, which is like flamethrower technology, essentially. Amazing. A big wooden ship is not the best thing to counter a Greek flamethrower. I wouldn't so. think so, no. 
So generally, they're more famous as trading out in the East. They're bringing things from Northern and Eastern Europe, such as furs, wax, honey, and also slaves as well. And they're trading these on the markets of the Eastern Mediterranean and Western Asia, specifically because they really, really want silver coins. They want lovely Islamic coins known as dirhams. Now, we, I believe, have a dirham on display that we found here at Coppergate. Yeah, our kind of sort of dirham. Because <laughs> it is actually, it, it's a Viking Age counterfeit of a dirham. Very good counterfeits, but it's not made of silver, our one, which might explain why a Viking chucked it away. <laughs> but we've got a few here on display now, in this case, which are definitely real ones. So these coins, the dirhams, it's the standard type of coinage used across the Islamic world, stretching from Spain in the west to Central Asia in the east. And loads of these are found in treasure hoards dating to the Viking Age across northern Europe. So there were hundreds of thousands of these coins flowing out of the markets of Western Asia and the Mediterranean along the rivers of places like Ukraine and Poland, into the Baltic Sea, and they're coming as far afield as Britain and Ireland, maybe even Iceland as well. So these coins have travelled a very, very long way, of course. One of them that we've got here even shows cut marks, meaning someone wasn't sure if it was pure, but it passed the test, unlike the one from Copyates, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) So the Vikings clearly, clearly like silver, don't they? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this this display case is, is very sparkly. Yes, definitely. So in the very early Viking Age, they're not exactly spending these in shops up in, like, Sweden or something <laughs> like that. Silver has more of a kind of social function than an economic function. You can imagine a Viking lord, a Jarl, is gifting it to the warriors that follow him. He's like, you've done a good job. It's a pile of silver coins because <laughs> you've been such a good boy. And they like to wear this silver as well to show how fancy-schmancy they are. They can show all the places they've been to, look at all the silver coins I've got in the East, look how fabulously wealthy and well-travelled I am. So quite often, these coins get turned into jewellery. Okay, I mean, you know, that's not an unfamiliar thing today. I went to Rome and I got a pair of, like, um, Florian earrings and things, but I guess this was a bit more... To show how travelled and stuff they were and, and where they might have uh, ransacked, I suppose. Yeah, or, or traded peacefully. Or traded, traded peacefully. peacefully, you're absolutely right. <laughs> um, so these coins can be made into things like necklaces. They're not always Arabic coins necessarily. Sometimes English coins or French coins are made into things like necklaces. You just punch a hole through the middle, put a string or a chain through it. But also they get turned into brooches, very much like... This brooch in the display case. This brooch here that looks like a coin? Yes, exactly. (laughs) And it looks like a coin, doesn't it? It does. It's actually not a real coin, which makes it even more interesting. (laughs) (laughs) A bit like our fake coin we have from (laughs) Coppergates. So this is actually a lead alloy pseudo coin. It's a very good imitation of an Arabic coin. It's got lots of these decorative bands of beading around it. There's some imitation Kufic scripts on it, a type of Islamic script. And this was found in London, dating to the 9th or 10th century. So again, lovely Viking Age England example, but with clear Eastern influence here. So this one is an imitation of a coin. 
and it's designed to give an appearance of wealth. So this person probably doesn't actually have access to real silver coins, but they want their friends and neighbours to, to think, think that, that they, they do. do. Yes. <laughs> it's like buying one of those like counterfeit like Gucci sunglasses or something <laughs> when you're on holiday, I suppose. Now, in terms of style, it's actually very similar to a pewter disc brooch that was found on Coppergate. That kind of decorative beading that you see is really similar. Our one doesn't have a uh, fake coin, though. It has a kind of, almost like a fleur-de-lis. It's a very kind of floral French-like symbol in it there. Um, but objects of foreign origin, made of high-quality materials, were probably very rare and highly valued. Even if you don't know where it comes from, this person may have never been to the East, but they know that wearing things that look like they're from the East <laughs> is it's, a way to make friends in society. Yeah, it's called fashion, darling. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> and it shows a clear awareness of coinage from the Islamic world in this area because they've tried their hardest to imitate that script you would see on a real coin. I suppose most your your average Viking wouldn't have known whether it was fake script or not. Yeah, a bit like our fake coin <laughs> from Coppergate. <laughs> so in the early period, they are wearing a lot of these coins. They're giving them to each other as gifts and things like that. Then I think someone has the bright idea of, why don't we spend the coins? Like money? Yeah, like the people on that marketplace were doing that we got them from in the first (laughs) place. So silver kind of transforms from a social function to an economic function. So you could, of course, just have this lovely coin you've just got from trading some honey or something and then literally spend it on, like we would do today when we get change in a shop. But one silver dirham is very, 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 very valuable. And if you want to buy something cheap in a shop, this is far too much money. And you might be familiar with hack silver. Vikings chop up a lot of silver. We did. T- we talked about hack silver a little bit in our Silverdale Horde episode yes, last year. Yes, we did, year. didn't we? Yeah. So when someone hands you a lump of silver, you want to, of course, make sure you've got the right amount of silver. <laughs> yeah. Which is why we have these lovely weights, which you will see in the display case here. So there are some weights from Coppergate, which are next to our coin-striking Viking, just over here. But these ones look quite different. These are Islamic-style weights. So some of these, if you look carefully, look a bit like dice, don't they? They do, yeah. They look kind of like those Dungeons & Dragons dice, don't they? Yeah, multi-sided, it's very weird. So they've got dots on them, known as dice weights. Uh, These ones all date to the late 9th century, and they're found in Yorkshire. So they're not actually found in the Islamic world, but they clearly have influence from the Islamic world. The number of dots probably indicates how much each is supposed to weigh for the trader that's using them. And the weights and measures used in the Islamic world were standardised in this time period. And the Vikings go, great idea, we shall do the exact same thing. <laughs> they pretty much copy and paste what they're doing out in the East. The Vikings are very, very open to clever ideas from the cultures that surround them. So some of these weights that are found on Viking Age sites, they could be imported from parts of Western Asia or the Mediterranean, but they also would locally produce imitations of them as well, with some pseudo-Arabic inscription on them sometimes. A bit like the pseudo-coin brooch, and a bit like... (laughs) (laughs) The Vikings were making their own weights after a while. Sometimes they've got their own little symbols on them as well that are not anything like the Islamic ones that we see. And we think this might be so that as, as a 
me as a unique individual Viking trader would have my own unique symbols on them. So if I've got a customer who might go, oh, you look over there, he can't swap my weights. <laughs> So we can get away with giving me less silver. So there's a way of keeping control of the transaction as a trader using these weights. Now, there is a piece in this case that kind of draws the eye, I think, a bit more than everything else. Let's talk about this necklace-looking thing, this neck ring. Yeah, so we've got a massive neck ring here. It's been bent into the shape of a heart. Very romantic. Yeah, lovely. It dates to the 10th to possibly as late as the 12th century and was found in Russia. It's an example of a Permian neck ring, and these are unique to the populations of Eastern Europe in this time period. So Permian rings, they are used as currency in this time period in Eastern Europe and Southern Scandinavia. They could, of course, be snips up into hack silver, pops on the scales and used with these uh, the D&D um, <laughs> weights that we've got over here. Uh, they're often standardised in their sort of size and weight as well, which is quite interesting. And they're mentioned in the accounts of the Arab writer Ibn Fadlan as well. So Ibn Fadlan deserves an episode in his own right. He does. We'll definitely get writer. there. He met some Rus traders and he tells us all sorts of interesting things about them. And there's one interesting quote that he mentions about neck rings that they're wearing, which might be of the style as this one is over here. He tells us that round their neck, the Rus women wear talks of gold or silver. For every man, as soon as he accumulates 10,000 dirhams, has a talk made for his wife. When he has 20,000 dirhams, he has two talks made, and so on. Every time he increases his wealth by 10,000, he adds another talk to those his wife possesses, so that one woman may have many talks around her neck. So that's quite interesting. Unlike the coin brooch, which is, look, I've got a coin. <laughs> This seems to imply that having one of these neck rings on implies you've got 10,000 dirhams in your bank account. A lot of coins, yeah. yeah. Like, I have so much money, I just can't even wear it all. It's a, it's a symbolic of greater wealth. So I'm unclear if that would be standard across the whole of this part <laughs> of the Viking world. But yeah, it's interesting that they're symbolic of greater wealth. And actually, if you look at the very tips of this neck ring as well, the terminals similar to the shape of the weights used for weighing out money. So there's a little relationship here, definitely, between silver neck rings and buying things in shops. <laughs> and you'll also notice that next to the big heart-shaped Permian ring, there is a little tiny piece of a Permian ring, the very end with the terminal, that's very similar to the larger one. This is a piece of hack silver. It's actually got little nick marks on it as well, showing that somebody has tested it to make sure it is pure silver, unlike, unlike our, our coin. <laughs> And this is from the Curedale Horde. It's the largest Viking Age horde ever found in England. And it was donated to the British Museum by Queen Victoria. Did she find it? Was she out with like a metal detector? I don't think that was her style really, <laughs> no. <laughs> and there are some examples of Permian rings found elsewhere in Britain. In the Beedale Horde from North Yorkshire. And also in the Store Rock Horde from the Isle of Skye. So... Much more common in the East, where the Rus are trading and raiding, but they're of course being carried across the Baltic Sea, across the North Sea, all the way here to merry old Jorvik. If you liked this episode and want to learn more about the Vikings, then come visit Jorvik Viking Centre, where you can enjoy the sights, sounds and smells of the Viking Age. 
You can book your tickets at yourvicvikingcentre.co.uk. Don't forget to rate and review that Yorvik Viking Thing podcast on your podcast app. And if you enjoyed the show, share us with a friend. It's the best way to help support your favorite history podcast. To contact us for more information or ideas for future episodes, you can email us on podcast at yorkat.co.uk. Thanks for listening to that Jorvik Viking Thing podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all other major podcast platforms. That Jorvik Viking Thing podcast is a production of the Jorvik Group and York Archaeology, hosted by Miranda Schmiederer and Lucas Norton. Researched by Lucas Norton, produced by Miranda Schmiederer, Lucas Norton, and Gareth Henry. Sound designed and edited by Miranda Schmiederer.